The next three weeks, we're going to look at one chapter, and it's Matthew chapter 14. And Matthew 14 is, if you want to turn there, the words will be up on the screen, but if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. It's a uh, it's the first book in the New Testament. Um, it's about three-fourths of the way through your paper Bible, but it's the first book in the New Testament. And, uh, and the 14th chapter, it's this turning point in the ministry of Jesus. It's, some commentators call this the alone season of Jesus. His public ministry starts to get quieter and quieter, and his private ministry with a few begins to increase and the pressure mounts as he is headed towards the cross. And so let me read these first few verses, 1 through 12 in Matthew 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, well, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, well, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and they took the body and they buried it. And they went and told Jesus. You know, as I'm thinking about this chapter in light of the bigger narrative of what's going on in Jesus' life, I think that Jesus' work to redeem us was so difficult. What he was tasked to do, to humble himself and come in flesh and then live a perfect life and deal with, with very imperfect people and then go to a cross and die perfectly and then raise from the dead. What, what a difficult task to redeem people, impossible other than God himself doing it. And at the same time, he put a really difficult task on a lot of people leading up to him people like John, to prepare the way for him. The theme of, of this whole book, Matthew, the theme of the whole book is the kingdom. We sing about the kingdom, we talk about the kingdom. The word kingdom has had a revival in the church, and I'm so glad. Uh, John preached, John the Baptist preached, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus had his disciples go out and preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. In chapter 13, right before this, there's multiple parables about the kingdom and so the kingdom is this big theme, and one of John's big tasks was to preach that the kingdom was at hand, to repent. And so I want us to go back, as this story is the demise of John, I want us to go back and I want us to just get re-familiar with John. So turn back a couple of chapters to chapter 11, and I want us to, to look at... This is, this is after John has been beheaded, chapter 14. I mean, he's been beheaded. It's, it's, a, it's a retelling of what's already happened. But chapter 11 is when John is actually in prison. 
And, uh, and it's, I'll just start in verse one. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison, and remember, he's in prison because he's been telling Herodias that she shouldn't be married to Herod and Herod that he shouldn't be married to Herodias. He's been calling out their sin, and so they locked him up. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind are receiving sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And if you mark in your Bible, if you're a person who like highlights or marks, I would mark verse six. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. And he said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John is many things. But I want to give you just at least three things that John is to help us understand what's happening when we get to Matthew 14. John is the forerunner to Jesus. John is a man who has doubts. And John's also the greatest person ever born of a woman up to this point. Uh, in Isaiah 40, three through five, it says, that, it says that there was a voice that cried in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Every valley will be raised up, every mountain made low. John, think about this. John was prophesied 600 years before Jesus that he would come and he would be the guy to introduce Jesus to the world. That's the guy who's in prison, whose head is cut off. He was prophesied about in, in Isaiah 43 through 5. He was also prophesied about in Malachi 3.1. Behold, I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. This, this, is, a, this is not just, not just a, a good preacher. He is a, an anointing among anointings. The world was waiting for John to come and lay out the red carpet that behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world might walk in. But John also, yes, he was a prophet and he was prophesied about, but he was also a man who had doubts. And I find this very comforting. I think when you look at, at Matthew 11 um, and he asks, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? We, we have actually some conflicting reports through church history. Even, um, I mean, some of the great minds of church history for a long time said that in John 11, the first few verses, John couldn't be doubting because prophets didn't doubt. But then when you look at like Elijah, Elijah was so depressed and scared over Jezebel 
that he prayed that God would take his life. And so I agreed for a long time with those folks that John wasn't, he, he wasn't doubting, but that he was using Bible verses to ask, without going into all the details, that he was using Bible verses to ask Jesus, are you going to get me out of prison? And you can make a case that he was, and actually I think he might have been, but I think the reason he was asking, are you going to get me out of prison? Is because in a weak moment, he knew he was the guy that was prophesied about. He knew he was supposed to lay the, the foundation for Jesus to walk in. And Jesus was not living up to John's expectations. And let's be honest, he was faithful and he was bold in his witness for the Messiah. When, when John was six months in his mother's womb, Mary or Elizabeth, when he was six months in the womb, we have one or two pregnant ladies around here. Like when the baby's six months, like everybody knows, like you're expecting. Mary had just, she had just become pregnant with Jesus and she left town to escape the scrutiny of an unmarried woman being pregnant. And when she walked up to Elizabeth, John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb. I mean, this kid was like godly from before birth. Like, I've heard your baptism testimonies. They're great. Anna Weeks um, is, is getting baptized this week, and she sent me her baptism testimony to read over, and it is great. But nowhere in the testimony did she say, when I was in my mother's womb and I walked into church, my mother says that I leapt every time they said Jesus. Like, no, like, people just don't, it's just not like, it, it's just very uncommon. That's why it's included. Like, he recognized Jesus from the womb. He and Jesus were cousins, and he introduced Jesus to the world. And I find great comfort that in a moment of weakness and disappointment, because Jesus wasn't living up to his expectations, he asked, are you really him? And up to this point, he was the greatest to ever be born. And for all the reasons just mentioned, he was prophesied about and he was a prophet. He was bold and he was strong. I mean, he was greater than, I mean, Jesus says it in Matthew eleven eleven. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. I mean, Moses, Abraham, David, Isaiah, Daniel, Ruth, uh, I mean, you, Deborah, Mary, Joseph, all of them. Like he's greater than all of them. And Why? Because he was chosen to introduce the world to Jesus. What an incredible calling. Let me just read you just a couple of more things about him because I really want you to understand this person that this story is surrounding. So in Matthew chapter three, I'm gonna read a few verses starting in verse four. And it's gonna describe John. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. You can't make this stuff up. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. But when he saw many I want you to, I'm reading this so that you can like get an idea of his personality. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, and he will gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I, I just wanted you to, to see that this, this is the man who... He was prophesied to come, was faithful from the womb, his grit, his passion, his heart. And in God's sovereignty, he is not getting out of prison alive. You know, you know what mercy is, right? Like mercy is when you get what you don't deserve. And I think John was asking Jesus for mercy and some justice. Like, Jesus, get, get me out of here. You can do it. Get me out of here. You know what grace is, right? Grace is God's undeserved favor, his, his unmerited favor. And grace also does something else for us. When, God, when we receive God's grace and his grace is bestowed upon us, we also have power within us to follow and obey and do the will of God. I think that uh, you know, we, we spend so much of our time asking God for mercy. And he is so merciful. And one of the easiest ways to prove that is because we so often don't get punished for our sins the way that we should get punished. He's so, he's so merciful to us. We, even our silly mistakes, he's so merciful. But, but sometimes we ask for his mercy because we idolize comfort. And, and God gives his mercy, but often... What we, what we need isn't his mercy. What we really need is his grace. His grace. Because his grace saves us. His grace is saving us. And his grace will save us. Another way to say that in more theological, uh, clear words would be salvation, sanctification, and glorification. Those are all a part of the grace. And how do we know that his, Jesus was offering his grace to John in prison, but not his mercy? I think because his request to be freed, which was for mercy and justice, was denied. But Jesus' final comment in Matthew eleven six, blessed are those who are not offended by me. I think those are his, by the way, those are the last known words of Jesus to John. Like, let that sink in for a second. The last known words of the one who paved the way for Jesus were blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That is not possible by human strength. That is only possible by his grace. His grace to trust Jesus beyond what John can see. 
And that requires faith. And when we have faith, we receive God's grace. And in that grace is great strength. So with that, back to, John, back to Matthew 14. John is sweating it out in, this, in his final days in the same prison that we left him in in chapter 11. And D.A. Carson, I think, says it so well. He says, it was right to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons, to still storms, to preach righteousness, announce the kingdom. But where was the judgment? Had the corruptions and cruelties of Caesar been aptly shut down? Had the hypocritical temple leaders been banished? Had the disgusting corruptions of Herod Antipas been confronted? Why was he, John the Baptist, languishing in the stifling heat of the prison at Macarius Fortress for challenging the morals of Herod while Jesus, the alleged Messiah, did nothing about this injustice? James Montgomery Boyce, a commentator, says, as far as John could see, the world was as wicked as it was before Jesus began his ministry. And at first glance, it was. And at first glance, the world is still as wicked as before Jesus began his ministry. Like, it still kind of is. But when you look a little deeper, I think you see that you're not wicked like you used to be. And I'm not wicked like I used to be. And he isn't, and she isn't. It reminds me of the, the final lines in, um, in True Detective in the first season, which I can't recommend that you watch, so don't. But the last little line is on, uh, it's, it's on like, all the, it's on YouTube and everywhere else. Like it's this last little dialogue between Rust and Marty and it's kind of become famous. And Rust is one character, Marty's the other. And I'll just kind of read you their dialogue. Rust says, I tell you, Marty, I've been up in that room looking out at those windows every night here just thinking, it's just one story. It's the oldest. And Marty said, what's that? He says, well, it's light versus dark. Marty says, well, it appears to me that the dark has a lot more territory. Well, yeah, you're right about that. But you're looking at it wrong, the night sky. Oh, yeah, how's that? Well, once there was only dark. You ask me, the light's winning. And I believe that John was offered in that moment in Matthew eleven six, to not be offended by Jesus the opportunity to see that the light's winning. It's just winning by a different score than John expected. And to accept this, he would need faith, and in that faith, receive the grace of Jesus and trust him beyond what he could see. Do you realize this? If you don't trust Jesus beyond what you can see, you will be offended by him. We have to trust Jesus beyond what we can see. Otherwise, it's no trust at all. And in this passage that we've read, Matthew 14, it's just insult to injury. John the Baptist, the faithful, the forerunner, the prophesied about, the prophet, he's not freed. And not only is he not freed, but there's this party there's this party going on while he is in prison. 
And I wonder if in the heat of that moment, when they are partying, and these parties were, were basically all men. And, and so Herod throws this party, and I'm sure John could probably hear that the party was happening while he's sweating in this place that's right now in the country of Jordan. It's so hot. He's sweating in this prison cell. They're having a party upstairs, and I wonder if it's just rolling through his mind, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Do I trust Jesus beyond what I can see? I just wonder that dark night of the soul that he was having. And, and these men, these men, these are like, this is a very Jeffrey Epstein moment. Like these men are drinking and, and, and they're partying and the Herod's wife Antipas or, or Herodias says, she says, hey, uh, why, don't, why don't you have my daughter, your stepdaughter, why don't you have her come in and dance for you? This was a dance that was reserved for slave girls, which doesn't make it right, but it should help understand the setting this girl was going to be gawked at and, and all kinds of other things. Like, and she's sending her own daughter in, his stepdaughter, to, to have this dance for these men. And the dance pleased Herod so much. He says, what do you want? And the girl's own mom, she goes back and says, mom, what do I want? And the mom says, I want John's head on a platter. And they do it. And his head is brought on a platter, given to the girl who's probably a teenager, and then she brings it to her mom. And that's how John goes out. It's insane to dance and to celebrate death. And it seems terrible that God would allow such a thing, but sin has a way of glorifying the grotesque. And listen to me on this. God has a way of allowing bad people to succeed and good people to hurt for a time. And I think that's why Christians have such a hard time defining success. Jason preached on success on Christmas Eve. It's an interesting thing. I asked Siri, um, what is success? And, uh, and this is what she told me. She said, uh, she, it's a, she, Siri is a she on my phone. Um, to accomplish of the, the accomplishment of an aim or a purpose. A subpoint is attainment of fame, wealth, or social status. A person or a thing that achieves desired aims or attains fame, wealth, etc. I think Christians have such a hard time defining su success because in this story, it really looks like Herod and his crew, though they're very, they're very crass and gross and, and they do terrible things, their life is full of money and pleasure and leisure. And John is in a prison. And it seems Herod and his crew are more successful. But success is defined so differently by God. It always has an eternal perspective. It's always the long game. It's always the salvation of Jesus redeeming people just as wicked as Herod and me and you. John's doubts leading up to this have helped many people. The Lord used this, has used John's story in so many people's lives to bring them to saving faith, to trust Jesus beyond what they can see, to have an eternal perspective. There are so many people like Herod and, and, uh, and his wife and his stepdaughter and these men that had gotten to the low, low point that finally woke up and realized this is not success, this is misery and death. And by the way, Jesus says that you, if you are in Christ, you are a success. It's bestowed upon you. 
In Matthew 11, 11, he says, no one born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater. D.A. Carson again says this, so often Christians want to establish their greatness with reference to their work, their giving, their intelligence, their preaching, their gifts, their courage, their discernment. But Jesus unhesitatingly affirmed that even the least believer is greater than Moses or John the Baptist simply because of his or her ability living on this side of the coming Messiah to point him out with greater clarity and understanding than all the forerunners ever could. If we really believe this truth, it will dissipate all cheap vying for position and force us to recognize that our true significance lies in our witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we land the plane, I want to talk about Jesus in this story and beyond. You see, the real, the real comparison here is not John the Baptist and Herod, but it's Jesus and Herod. It looks like Herod comes out on top here. But if you look at history, a few years later, Herod's brother Agrippa was appointed king. Herodias really, really, really like put her thumb on Herod and said, you need to go to Rome and you need to ask to be appointed king too. So he did. But Agrippa sent a letter ahead of him, charging him with treason. When he got to Rome, his power was taken away, he was exiled, and he died a pauper's death. It's important for us to understand what happened to Herod, who looked like a king, like success, but on the inside was very poor. And Jesus, who looked on the outside like a very poor man, but on the inside was the king of kings. Jesus loved and Jesus healed. But Jesus had a very, very similar moment to John the Baptist. Jesus also asked if he could be freed. And he prayed three times. And the father's answer was no. Jesus' reply was not my will, but yours be done. Jesus also would become entertainment for people as he was mocked and beaten. They celebrated as he died. There's an incredible parallel between the death of Jesus, the last hours of him, and the last hours of John the Baptist. But on the third day, Jesus defeated sin and defeated death and he rose from the grave and is coming again to rule for all eternity. John the Baptist is now with Jesus and he's no longer in a prison cell. John decreased that Jesus might increase and it cost him his life, but it only cost him his life once because the second death of hell and eternal separation from God was swallowed up and defeated by Jesus on the cross. John had the choice to trust Jesus as far as he could see him and result in being offended by him or to trust Jesus with an eternal perspective 
that this too would pass and that God was good and he was in control and his life was in no better hands than in the Father's and not be offended by Jesus. The fact that you are a success because it's been bestowed upon you is here. The question is, will you believe it? If your mark of success is anything other than you being a child of God, I promise you, your parties will end like Herod's and you will celebrate death in one shape, form, fashion, or another. Jesus will be offensive to you. My encouragement is that you would realize there is no greater significance than to be a child of the king and that you will trust Jesus beyond what you can see. You will claim the truth that you are beloved, that you will surrender and be free, that you'll realize you're greater than John the Baptist because you can tell the world about who Jesus was and is and is coming again. Surrender and be free. Decrease that he might increase. Trust him beyond what you can see and begin to embrace that eternal perspective. Let me pray. Father, as we sing to you tonight, as we close out this time, Lord, would you just break our image of success? Lord, would you break any chains that are making us offended by you because you're not living up to our expectations. And Lord, may we trust you beyond what we can see. And may we realize that we are children of the King if we are in Christ. And if we are not in him, would we realize that as well and repent and turn and come to Jesus and receive his grace. Lord, may we find great freedom in saying exactly what John did that we might decrease so that you may increase. It's in Jesus' name I pray, Lord. Amen.